Welcome to When Pigs Fly. We're uncovering Cincinnati's rich business history from the 1800s to today. We talk to companies to learn the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, what it takes to grow a successful business, and to simply pros to future innovation. I'm your co-host, Patrick Bailey. And I'm your other co-host, Allie Martin. And today we are talking with Scott Shane of Comeback Capital. Woo. Do you know what venture capital is, Allie? <laughs> this is this is your territory. And I think this <laughs> this also is what makes us work, I think, so well because you have this venture capital startup background. And I am a little bit more foreign to it. So during this journey, if you know a lot about venture capital, first of all, I'm learning this. It's not venture capitalism. It's venture capital. <laughs> I, I I had a correct error before we yes, started recording. before we got into this. So, you know, bear with me. And if you don't know a lot about it, you're going to, you're going to maybe be happy that I ask, uh, you know, the questions that I have of the basics. Yeah. And, you know, Venture capital actually is a relatively new investment, I guess, vehicle mm-hmm. is the best way to put that. It started kind of, I mean, you can kind of say it started back when like the railroads were happening. Yeah, private investment into those companies. And then, you know, the first modern VC firm was kind of developed uh, out of MIT in 1946. Mm. So in the grand scheme of things, compared to stocks and other investment vehicles, it's still mm. relatively new. It's something that people don't really understand because it's not really readily accessible to most Americans. You have to be an accredited investor. Yeah. And I think from our perspective here in the Midwest, right, in Cincinnati, when I think venture capital, when I think investors, I think Silicon Valley, you know, East Coast, West Coast, not necessarily here in Cincinnati. So it'll be interesting to get Scott's perspective as to what he's looking for, too, as an investor. And if I were to be starting my own startup, what are the things that I need to be checking the boxes with? Because think about um, talking with Chelsea, right, from mm. Gotcha Pack. Yep. What do, what do you prepare for going into a meeting? I don't know. We're about to find out. <laughs> exactly. And I think a lot of people are in, you know, a similar boat as you, uh, thinking, yeah. you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook when it comes yeah. to venture capital and startups. So let's bring him in. And uh, I'm really excited for this discussion. Let's do it. With that, let's get yeah. started. So let's start off. What is venture capital? Well, so venture capital is just a method for getting money from some set of people that gets pooled by an investor who takes the action of putting it in to buying equity in a young company. That's essentially the model. So if the two of you got together and said, oh, we would like to invest money in a bunch of startups, and one of you became a general partner and was the one who was going to make the investment decisions and the other was just going to give the money into the fund and be the limited partner there, that'd be a very small venture fund. So who typically are these people that are feeding these funds then? So you've got different varieties of people. So one of the things is that For most venture capital activity, the investors have to be accredited investors. And accredited investors are high net worth individuals. Mm -hmm. So 
either they have to have net worth of a million dollars or higher, excluding their home, or they have to have incomes of $300,000 a year if a married couple or $200,000 if they're a single person, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea is that these are people that the government believes can withstand the risk of losing money Mm -hmm. or not having the ability to get their cash out for a period of time. In small venture funds, it's usually a bunch of individuals, maybe somebody who made some money on their own, a wealthy doctor or lawyer that puts the money in. The bigger money venture funds, if you hear about this in the, you know, in the media and the news would generally get their money from another kind of institution, like a university endowment Mm. or a pension fund where they're putting many millions of dollars to work to generate returns for some other purpose. Do you ever see the cycle if someone is invested in, so let's say Patrick and I, we want to start our own, we have a startup, right? And somebody invests in us, it does well. And then next thing you know, we're in the position of potentially investing towards someone else. Is that typical? Is that common? Yeah, so that's the most likely sources of people who get involved in making these kinds of investments and putting the money in are either entrepreneurs who've done it and had the success. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they spend 10 years working hard, they finally exit their venture, they have some money, and they want to put that money in to other founders, right? That's a big part. The other part is people who come from the financial sector in some way, because they realize that diversification is a big key to making money, right? Mm -hmm. So it's very hard to predict if I looked at 100, you know, ideas of and entrepreneurs who are doing this today, which one would be successful. But if I know if I have 100 people doing some kind of software to solve some problem that businesses have, within that 100 is probably a billion dollar company. And so the finance people look at this and go, okay, so let's pool the money, let's put it into this. On average, we'll get a high return. You did mention exit. So for our listeners, can you explain what is an exit event? You know, that's, I know that, and Ali, I guess we'll learn that, you know, this is how the investors who invest in your fund make their money back. So can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. So for a lot of venture investing, people are putting money into a company that is a private company that's trying to grow. And that company is probably not making a profit in the early years. It's losing money. And so how do you make money and get it out? That company isn't paying dividends, right? It isn't paying any money to the shareholders. So the way you make money is on a capital gain when that company is sold. The companies, a small portion of the companies get sold to the public, right, in a public offering, right? That's a rare event, but tends to be pretty lucrative, right? So Uber had a public offering, right? And the public bought the shares from the earlier investors. The more common way is that another company buys the startup company, right? And that in that acquisition, they're buying the shares of the company. And then the previous owners who were the investors get their money out. And that's the exit. We tend to like always focus on those two because they're the good ones. Mm. Cause the bad ones are that the company goes out of business and everybody loses all their money. But when the mm. company goes out of business and everybody loses their money, it's an exit. It's just an exit with a big zero. 
So what is the typical percentage of those who exit with the positive versus the negative? So the rule of thumb is that, well, let me take a step back and say, there's getting out with some positive outcome, that is people get back more money than they invested, is actually fairly common. That probably happens 25 to 30% of the time. Mm. But what you want to think about is the fact that one is bearing a lot of risk to get, you know, maybe a 10% return over a few years. Mm -hmm. You're better off actually maybe buying a public stock that's pretty stable to get that kind of return. What people are really worried looking for is the ability to get very big returns because the big returns happen maybe one in 10 or one in 20 of the companies where you're making 10 or more times your money in that exit, in that outcome. Which industry, I have a guess, which industry is getting the most return right now? Early 1980s, you would see that biomedical ventures Mm -hmm. and software were about even in the Mm -hmm. um, space where we'd have a lot of this. Now, almost everything is software or kind of software-driven media type of outcomes where that's the case. There still are some physical technologies and biomedical stuff that can be very big. And some of the biotech companies that came about in the past kind of 15 years are the ones responsible for all the COVID vaccines. So it's not Mm -hmm. like we don't have fantastic innovations and the RNA vaccine technology is a startup world thing. It's just that kind of TikTok makes you more money than the RNA vaccine. Interesting. While we're still kind of talking on about this, where do you see, and trends, where do you see the trend going? Do you still see it continuing in the software digital space? Yeah, absolutely. It's a 100%. So one of the things that happens is that software has this incredible feature that margins on the business are really high, right? You can get 90% margins on the business because the one unit that you took to build this can be then added at virtually zero marginal cost, right? And especially if you're talking about a piece of software where your customer is downloading it, they're even doing the work to get do the distribution for you, right? And so that's the case. And also on a business side, software is really good for adding to productivity advantages, right? Like people once walked around a factory and took a pencil and a clipboard and wrote stuff down. And now you can have, you know, automatic software reading machines and doing analysis, all of those kinds of solutions that people do one thing after another. Then on the consumer side, we've had unbelievable movement towards like software driven kinds of entertainment and other things. I mean, all the social media activities, all the entertainment activities, they're all software. That's, it's huge. I don't see it ending. Yeah. I mean, especially with COVID. I mean, I think you just look back (laughs) your own lives for the past, you know, year. It's like, okay, Netflix, Zoom, you know, you're looking at all these softwares that help, you know, get us through this trying time. 
you think COVID has accelerated, I guess, the adoption of these digital technologies, but also people wanting to invest in those kinds of technologies? I think that, you know, there's a lot, COVID and, and, and the ancillary effects of COVID have definitely pushed a lot of things forward. For example, right, there's all kinds of people who are needed in a supply chain, right? So of the, of the process. So let's take just your groceries, right? Now people used to go to the grocery, right? Like that was a thing. And now all these people don't go to the grocery, right? I still go to the grocery, but most people aren't going to the grocery. Well, now we've got, what about the grocers and all the software that they need, then all the delivery logistics that all they need. And so you just add all that stuff up, that's added. Now, on the investment side, we get another effect, which is to respond to COVID, the government did things where they basically took away the ability, they drove interest rates so low that you can't invest money by buying a bond. You can't get any money. You can't buy a CD and make any money. At the margin, that's what pushes people into doing things like buying stocks. The the same trend that pushed people to do kind of speculation on GameStop is the same thing that's pushing people to go into venture stuff. Where am I going to put my money so I can make some more money? If somebody has has a software idea, what are some things that you're looking for if you want to invest? So the first thing is, does this person know anything about the customer's problem that they're trying to solve? So if you tell me, I've been in media for 15 years and I like now do these podcasts with Patrick, right? And I actually know something about what kind of software like makes the voices sound better because I've actually done it. That's going to be much more appealing to me than somebody who was, say, a taxi driver for a while who says, I think I should do podcasts. And like, I don't know anything about the audio technology at all. Like, I'm like, well, okay, maybe it's a good idea, but you're not the right person for it. So that's that that when people call this like the domain expertise, that's a big thing. And the the second thing is whether the idea can get very large and the market is large. So there's a fixed cost of time and money to do any kind of business. And so if there's a $10 million market to do something and the best that this company can ever do is make, you know, maybe a million dollars of profit ever, you're never going to generate the return it takes to overcome the risk. On the other hand, if this is a $10 billion solution in a giant market, then there's a big opportunity. So that's a, that's a second thing that's important. And then I think my personal one that I focus a lot on is people pay for things because they get more value in having their problem solved then they're paying to get the problem solved, right? And if you think about it, say you're flying through O'Hare Airport and you have a splitting headache, you will pay like the $10 per tablet that they charge for like Tylenol in the airport. But I almost guarantee you, you're not going to stop because you forgot your vitamins and pay 10 times what you should pay for the vitamins in the airport. The idea here is that 
people have a really big problem. And so I always want to know yeah. how bad is this problem? If customers have a real pain and you can solve that pain, then they'll pay you money and, and you have a chance with a good business. So from the other side of it, right? So we're talking a little bit more on your side of investing. What about those who are beginning a startup and are the entrepreneurs? Why choose venture capital as a pathway to begin a business? Because you don't have a better choice. So if you can, you're poor. because you're poor. So if you can, you're better off. If you can just get your customers to pay up front, right? Like I would tell always tell founder, like, okay, so I want to sell you the solution to your problem customer and you think it's really bad. I haven't made it yet. Give me $10,000 now. I'll spend $5,000 to make it. And then I've got $5,000 of profit. If I can get my customer to pay in advance, that's the best. If I can get some other way to do it. But you go to venture capitalists because your mom is not a billionaire to give you the money for your business and your customers aren't paying you in advance. And it's very expensive capital because the risk is really high and the investor needs a high return to make up for all the zeros that happen when the companies fail. And so get money other ways if you can. You go to a venture capitalist because you don't have a better choice. That is my view and looking at it from the other side. So what is your opinion of like a GoFundMe page? Well, so if you can get people to give you money for something, right? So crowdfunding when it when it's like product crowdfunding, like I've made this thing and you're going to pay me for it and I'm going to give you a sample. That's fantastic because you haven't given up any of your company. GoFundMe is also great. Like, you know, just give me money. Would you say that typically venture capital is successful and a good idea if you need to hire people? I mean, I guess every business model is different. Venture capital is really good for thinking about it as growing a business and as fuel. So just think about this. The analogy that a lot of people use is I have a little bit of a fire started with a match, mm -hmm. right? If I pour gasoline on the fire that has a match, I'm going to get a big fire, right? If I haven't lit the match and I pour gasoline on it, I don't have a big fire. I just have a big, wet, soggy mess. Yeah. Right. So the thing about this is what you want is to like not raise that expensive capital until I've got a little bit of something going and working and I'm pouring fuel on to get it bigger. Mm -hmm. Now, what do I use that money for? Depends on the business. Like if my business is pre-COVID and I need a building for everybody to be in. Yeah, maybe that's a good use of money. I, in today's world, with everybody not working from an office, yeah. it feels like that'd be a really bad use of the money. So entrepreneurship's a funny thing, right? It's very risky. Yeah. Entrepreneurs focus on their one business. If they're unsuccessful, mm -hmm. right, it's too bad for them. And then there's one billionaire in the bunch, right? Yeah. That's really successful. On the other hand, if you invest in 100 people's businesses, 
you're going to have the billionaire in the bunch, right? And then you, you, you have the opportunity on that side. But um, honestly, how did I get into it? I got into this because the, I was teaching uh, entrepreneurship at uh, Sloan School at MIT and I had students come in and say, hey, would you take a look at my business? And I thought if I'm teaching entrepreneurship, you know, my teaching ratings would probably be better if I had a couple stories for the students. So let me take a chance and invest and see what happens. And so investing in early companies is really quite a lot of fun, mm-hmm. right? It, because entrepreneurs are creative people generally. They're solving problems. This is a good thing. People putting a lot of energy into it. And so you do that. And then, you know, I did that for a, a number of years and then ended up becoming a venture capitalist completely by accident. I was in uh, asked in, to be in a meeting in um, Northeast Ohio when a bunch of venture capitalists were traveling from California and New York through the Midwest on a bus tour with two congressmen. And I said, hey, you know, I have a model if you want to invest in, you know, places like Youngstown and Cincinnati and Indianapolis yeah. and Cleveland. And that's, you know, put your money into some local people who would invest in companies in those places, not just San Francisco and New York. Yeah, because I think it would be nice to uh, elaborate a little bit more on your business side of things, right? So for Comeback Capital, tell people what Comeback Capital is. So Comeback Capital is an early stage venture fund. What we're doing is taking money from two groups of people, Bigger venture investors that are from New York or San Francisco that find it difficult to find opportunities in other parts of the country. And then investors who are high net worth individuals and family offices and things like that from across the you know Midwest who also find it difficult to find deals in cities other than the one they're in, right? So if I'm in Pittsburgh, it's really hard for me to find a Minneapolis company to invest in. How would I know what's going on in Minneapolis at that yeah. early stage? And then what we do is we put those people's money deployed into those companies. Now, we are branching out into some other stuff in the second half of 2021 for the next few years, we're going to be running and investing alongside uh, Generator in an accelerator studio in Cincinnati, where people come start companies in software for business and healthcare. That's the focus. And then those investments hopefully will grow into bigger companies. And so also, in addition, to Patrick, to what you're about to say, for people who don't know, Comeback Capital is focused mainly in the Midwest, right? So you're not more on the, you're not doing the Silicon Valley side of things. So one of the things to know about venture capital in America is that effectively 75% of venture capital lies in new companies in New York City, San Francisco, Silicon mm-hmm. Valley, and Boston. And so what we're trying to do is invest in all the rest, right? Whether that's Des Moines or Louisville or Cincinnati or Pittsburgh, it's all the rest. And so the one thing that I don't think there's a problem of people in San Francisco raising money for their companies, and there's plenty of better people to go to for that, but there's not a lot of opportunities to get the early money everywhere else. And that's what we're trying to do. 
Now, what made you realize or what was the aha moment that, hey, the innovation in these other areas is underserved and underutilized? Okay, so entrepreneurs always solve, the good ones solve problems, right? And wherever people are, there are some problems that some entrepreneurs are solving, right? So let's take examples of things that were in the media. Flint, Michigan had a water crisis, right? So an entrepreneur there would be the one who would know how to, you know, detect things about water, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's working on that problem. So we invested in a, you know, fantastic company that is doing software to control robotic arms for welding. Well, where do people weld metal? that they tend to be in places like Ohio and Michigan where we're making cars or making ships or things like that. It's not a San Francisco Bay Area problem. What industries are you seeing pushed more in the Midwest? The Midwest still has disproportionate amount of manufacturing, right? So there's Mm -hmm. software that, say, can identify defects in a product's on the assembly line without ripping it apart to see if there's a defect, right? It's not very useful to rip apart a product to discover there's a defect if nine times out of 10, there was no defect and now I've destroyed my product to test it, right? And so I kind of, if I could figure this out by like using computer vision, Mm -hmm. like that might be a better way to solve, you know, a problem. So a lot of stuff in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Also, there's a lot of healthcare in innovation in places like this. And I don't mean the, I mean, things like hospital administration, back office things, right? Mm. There's a lot of that. Places like Columbus, Ohio and Kansas City are where people run a lot of customer support and success operations, right? Like, you know, you don't really want your customer support people to be in New York. They're all stressed out. It's the wrong time zone (laughs) for dealing with half the country, right? That kind of stuff. So you want to put it where, you know, an average American can have a decent living and do customer support. And so software for managing, you know, that kind of stuff, agricultural technology, right? Like, Yeah, that kind of stuff. Well, where are they growing the soybeans? Right. They're not growing the soybeans in Manhattan. I can tell you that. (laughs) What? (laughs) Not in Soho? Weird. No, I guess just kind of going along that tangent, obviously, you've seen software in all these industries, you know, Ali and I have noticed like on your portfolio, you know, there are some consumer products. My, you know, a little biased opinion favorite is, you know, workwear. Can you elaborate, you know, what stuck out? stuck out with, you know, those kinds of companies. And then I know, you know, there is a story behind Xena. So I would love to have you tell our listeners about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So what matters in in stuff? So I tried to describe this a little bit, right? One of the things is the entrepreneur. So what's the story that the entrepreneur is telling about the problem that they're solving? How good are they at telling the story about why people need this? How much do they understand the problem? So in the case of, you know, Xena Workwear, this is stylish steel-toed work boots for women, right? This is not a typical venture capital-backed business. But so I heard Anna Kraft pitch the idea, and then I went to some kind of young female engineers that I knew, and I said, like, 
what do you think of the idea? And I got back a response that said, oh my God, we're on the wait list for this product. We can't wait to come out with it because the alternative is just like men's work boots that are slightly smaller in pink and I can't wear it with something like looks good, right? And then the, but the idea, right? here was quite good and there was a bunch of demand. So we will do investments like that if people have a good idea. You know, I just heard a company out of Nebraska the other day that is a two-sided platform that's like rent the runway, but for wigs, right? And I did not know, by the way, that 90% of the demand for wigs are African-American women, right? Like that was about now... One of the things about a consumer product is like, if you want to sell that, you got to get like influencers and stuff to push the product. But if you have a target group that's in high demand for that, you might really be able to reach them in a pretty straightforward way by incentivizing a small group of influencers, right? And so you could make that work with a relatively small number of stylists. So those are kinds of things where, you know, The software may only be a small piece of the value of the business, but if it's a good enough business, it's a good enough business. So you just kind of sparked a question in my mind, too. Who is the typical demographic that would approach you for venture capital investment? So who's the typical demographic that would approach us or would approach venture capitalists in general? I guess venture capital in general. Right. So venture capitalists in general that like, you know, prototypical person is somebody who's like an engineer who went to, you know, a top school and worked for, you know, seven or eight years in some, you know, software kind of company. Right. That's typical. Mm -hmm. We disproportionately get people who don't look like that at all. Right. And we have disproportionate numbers of female entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs of color. And part of the reason is that we're small and we invest very early, which is less common than most people. And we're going to get the people who the bigger firms won't be bothered with. And there's a, there's a, bias that a lot of investors have towards like a mental image of two guys who went to Stanford and studied engineering, starting a company. And if when people don't look like that, it's harder for them. And so we were like, okay, well, they come to us and they have a good idea. We put some money in. Yeah. What do you have to say to those people? Because we had just recently spoken with someone on our last podcast about that, where, you know, overall her experience has been, you know, pretty positive, but she's run into one or two of those little hiccups as well. And it's just, I think we've, we've formed, like you said, that thought and that perception in our head. So what do you, what do you have to say to those types of thoughts and people who might believe that? coming from your stance that you typically start small and, and you're, you're looking at the wider scope of things. I guess I would say I kind of hope that they keep having their biases because that's an opportunity for me to make money. So if great entrepreneurs end up at me because the partners at Sequoia wouldn't talk to them, right, I am very yeah. happy for that outcome. A society should not be happy with that. No. But it's difficult because venture capitalists are inundated. 
right? They're they're going to at best look at one in a hundred or invest in one in a hundred of the things that they see and probably even less than that. And they're always looking for a reason to move on and, and say no. And so if somebody presents an idea that's too small or they don't look like they're right or whatever, it's the reaction is that they tend to say no. Now, I mm. believe that human beings need to like overcome their no and look at that. For the industry at large, the answer is really to have more different people on the other side of the table making the investments. Because as much as I try, if somebody is pitching me a makeup business, I really don't understand the product because I don't use it. Yeah. So how does one get into your shoes, sit in the same seat that you're sitting in? I mean, there are people who go and simply, you know, go out and start a venture fund and go raise money from, you know, limited partners. It's actually pretty, very mm -hmm. difficult to do because if you have no track record, it's, it's tough. Mm -hmm. The most common path really happens is that people kind of generate some wealth somehow, they start making some investments, and then they mm -hmm. formalize and organize that more, or they went to work for some bigger venture firm. It's just that mm -hmm. there are order of magnitude, maybe 6,000 professional venture capitalists in America. This is not a big industry, yeah. right? There are way more people in almost every industry than in venture capital. You bring up, gosh, that's such a good point, though, too, is you really have to have a wide range of demographic on your side of the table as well. So let's say Patrick and I are pitching you a makeup brand or whatever it might be. What are some things that, as an entrepreneur, they should know going into that meeting with you to say, hey, invest in me? So every business at heart can be reduced to numbers. So mm -hmm. if you tell me, that you're selling a product that has 70% margins. That's 70% margins. It doesn't matter if it's makeup or it's dog food or it's software. It's 70% margins. And if you tell me that yeah. it costs a dollar to acquire a customer and the customer's value is $10,000. That's an unbelievable ratio regardless of what business you're in. And if somebody else yeah. tells me it costs $500 to you know, acquire a customer and each customer is worth $501, I'm like, that's not very good. And so one of the things that most entrepreneurs don't do when they're pitching is reduce the business and explain the economics of the business to the investor. And I'm sure a lot of that is because they're very passionate about what they do, right? So they, they believe in it and they also see sometimes that could be clouded by just the numbers. Yeah. So the, the problem is that investors are providing money and money needs to go to where's the best return yeah. on the money. And so in the end, as much as entrepreneurs, you know, you have one business, Patrick has another business, you each think it's the best business yeah. ever. Unless the numbers are exactly the same, one of you's got a better business for your investor mm. than the other. In that same vein, out of you know, probably the thousands of pitches you've seen, what is a common theme or thread amongst like the top besides, you know, obviously the numbers? You know, you brought up the pain point earlier. You know, is there anything with the pain point in, in order to get that across? 
when you deliver your pitch with passion, you capture people's attention. And that's like one of the things. And to be honest, people in media actually know this, right? Like you have to capture people's attention (laughs) when you're doing stuff, right? That's one piece. Another thing is that storytelling is very important. So the most successful entrepreneurs and pitches that I've ever seen, there's a story about why this was a real problem and how they solved it. And that is, you know, very successful. A good example of this is a portfolio company of ours, Float Me. In the very beginning, Josh Sanchez, one of the founders, was like in San, he started in San Antonio, was like hit by a bus just after he moved to San Antonio. He was like, oh my he had no money. And he had to go to like the emergency room and pay money. And he overdrafted his bank account and hit with like a $40 fee for an overdraft. Mm. And he created this company called Float Me, which gives like $5 instant floats so you don't overdraft your account. Right. Mm-hmm. And the point is that when he pitches, he tells the story about how he was just out of school, had no money, got hit by a bus, went to the emergency room, right? And it's vivid and people can get it, right? Like, I remember Anna Kraft pitching Xena Workwear, talking about how ugly the boots are that engineers have to wear. And like, you know, when somebody is dressed in stylish clothes with ugly pink Timberland boots, right? Like they don't like that. This is our go listen to number eight with Brad Hill. Our whole, we, we spoke with a tour guide and we were talking all about storytelling, right? And what it takes to also be a good storyteller. So I think that's very interesting that you mentioned that piece. I kind of want to switch gears here, you know, focus on Cincinnati. What is up and coming here from what you're seeing in this market? What do you, I guess, hope to see from this market moving forward? You know, a lot of people say we have a lot of accelerators here, but not enough investors, not enough capital. So capital is really mobile. It's very easy to invest anywhere, right? So if somebody from like Phoenix, Arizona needs money, they can call an investor, right? Pitch them and like the money could, the banks wire the money, right? They go, it goes to Phoenix easily. The harder part is what are the problems that people are seeing in an area that, you know, are good for business? So Cincinnati has like pretty strong kind of health organizations. Also kind of the Northern Kentucky area is kind of logistics, pretty you know, Mm -hmm. active logistics area. And there's a lot of stuff with logistics and shipping and that kind of software. I mean, there's all kinds of businesses in other areas too. The logistics piece also leads to the trucking and the, you know, distribution. And then there's the whole management of that, those kinds of things. The kinds of businesses that I focus on would have to have the ability to have incredibly rapid growth. So it tends not to be as much as there's probably regional food specialties in Cincinnati that everybody eats, right? I mean, as big as Greater's Ice Cream is (laughs) and as big as that stuff can be, it's not going to be the kind of explosive growth that you could get from a piece of software where you figured out the way to like route all the trucks coming from a, Mm. you know, FedEx hub or an Amazon hub or something like that. So with that, and you kind of just touched up on it, where do you think Cincinnati can improve from an entrepreneurial standpoint? Well, 
the entrepreneurial community, we could have more entrepreneurs developing more ideas. We could have more investors doing it. I find that one of the disadvantages in a lot of Ohio is that we don't support entrepreneurship in the state with the government and nonprofit organizations the way that other states in the country are doing this. And that I think is the problem. I don't, it's really less of a problem at a city level because it's not usually the city stuff. But if I compare how much the state of Minnesota supports entrepreneurial activity in Minnesota and I compare that to what Ohio does, like we're not really doing a good job compared to what the philanthropic community and the government does in the state of Minnesota. So what kind of, I guess, policies, you know, you said that you were on a bus tour with, you know, representatives, you know, what kind of policies could be enacted or proposed in order to help entrepreneurs? Well, so one of the things is the degree to which efforts can be made to incentivize the capital to be invested. So one, one, of the, one of the hard problems in America is if all the entrepreneurial activity is really taking place, or the majority of it is taking place in, say, California or New York, mm-hmm. the wealthy people who have the capital to invest are investing in funds that then are putting their money into the companies in California and New York, right? Mm-hmm. And the capital that was created a generation ago from wealth was not being, you know, isn't being developed, it's being exported. And so policies that incentivize people to keep the money at home. Other things that I think are important is there's actually a lot of really good entrepreneurial talent that doesn't understand company creation and all of the incentives and the place for government and philanthropic organizations is supporting that education and training piece. Like I can teach somebody how to write a pitch deck, right? To describe Mm. their business. I can teach somebody how to pitch investors. I could teach somebody how to develop the financial statements and the financial model for the business. So if I'm a great entrepreneur and I don't have that knowledge, investors can't see that and invest in the company because I can't present it right. And so if you have the state or the philanthropic organizations investing in the education, so the entrepreneur with a good idea knows how to convey it, then the system works better. And that I think is where Ohio and Cincinnati is not as good as say Minneapolis and Minnesota. So where, let's let's take Minneapolis and Minnesota as an example. Where is that education then happening? Is it in the universities? Are there separate programs outside of traditional schools? So it's mostly, when we say education, we're really talking more about training and training that's done by, you know, accelerators and pre-accelerators and incubators and Mm. more informal kinds of education. There is some of it that goes on in the, inside the educational institution. But if you think about it, it's really hard to deliver knowledge to somebody that they're going to then use five years from now. Because by the time you get to five years from now, what somebody learned in an entrepreneurship class at a university, like when they were not starting a business, is not going to be useful. They're not going to remember it five years later. Like it's a student. They're going to remember nothing after the exam's over. 
Yeah, that's true. <laughs> incubators. I, I think of the incubator. There's a incub- couple incubator kitchens in Cincinnati, Newport, and over in Washington Park that do very similar work like that where they you're dealing with young entrepreneurs who are in the food industry, which is already challenging to begin with because there's so much overhead. And they a lot of them have no idea how to even maneuver the business world. And uh, they are training them there, which I think is cool. Comeback Capital recently announced the, a rolling fund. So for our listeners, A, can you explain what the heck a rolling fund is? I think we, we have good basis here now, uh, venture capital overall. But can you explain the rolling fund and you know what you're looking forward to next? A rolling fund is just a structure to solve some basic problems of getting money into the fund, right? So mm. here's the problem, right? Like, A traditional venture fund, when there's a date of closing that the money comes in, and if people miss that deadline, then only when you have the next fund can they invest. And that means the venture capitalist doesn't have money to invest, can't get more money to invest in that period. And these funds could last four or five years. So it's missing a deadline is is not easy. So what a rolling fund does is it allows for the investment to be made on a quarterly basis, right? So in fact, what people are investing in is a fund that's putting money into companies just for that quarter. And by it being rolling, it solves the problem of the timing. That's the primary thing. Now, the structure of a rolling fund is a, has a legal version where there's a stronger verification that people are truly accredited investors and can make this investment. And as a result, people can talk about their funds in ways that they're not allowed to if people are not accredited investors. So that that's a legal structural process. The hard part about venture investing is it's really the kind we've been discussing is limited to these accredited investors. It's not something that everybody does. Now, a we funder, there's certain kinds of exemptions that are make this possible and people can make small investments, but you're not funding a couple million dollars of a software company from lots of people's $2,000 investments. So before our last question, can you go dive into specifically the Comeback Capitals next fund? Yeah. So what we are doing is we like to invest in very early stages of very high potential businesses. And we currently have a business out there and, you know, it's very hard to find early stage businesses. So if somebody's got an idea for a piece of software or a solution to some business problem or or high potential growth or real consumer interest, we would want to see that at the very early stages. Take whatever business is out there, Cameo, right? At the beginning, there was somebody had to have the idea and somebody has to have the first, be the first customer. I want to know about businesses like that at the beginning. Somebody comes up with a piece of software for making quoting insurance better. At the beginning, they got one customer. I want to know about that then. That's what we're looking for. And then we try to judge whether we believe this has a chance to become really big. So with that... Last question, you know, what's what's the one tip that you could give a young entrepreneur or someone who is building a startup? Figure out some really painful problem that people have in the world and solve it. If you solve 
any kind of pain that people have, they will give you money. And that's the heart of any business. You solve a painful problem, people give you money, and you get more money than it takes to solve their problem, and you make money. Wow, that was a lot. (laughs) I learned all the things, and I hope everyone else who doesn't know too much about venture capital feels the same. And I know I asked way more questions, and so I'm sorry about that, but... They just kept coming to me. I had to. Hey, I was happy you asked because being in this yeah. industry, I feel like I don't know from that perspective anymore. Except mm-hmm. for I did learn, you know, how to explain it better to people from yeah. Scott. It's like he's a professor Especially, or something. Exactly. Yeah, he's a professor <laughs> at Case Western. And so, <laughs> you know, definitely learned, you know, how to break it down for other people. And, you know, it's not like Shark Tank. <laughs> no, and that's where I step in where I'm like, wait, that's all production. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be fooled. The best part is now having this understanding and this foundation of venture capital, as we speak with more businesses, talking with them and learning, again, how they got their foundation and their start, and did mm. they choose to go with investors and following through with those questions with this base of knowledge, I think will be very helpful for not only us and myself included, but also our listeners all- along the way. Definitely, definitely. And one point that Scott brought up, you know, venture capital is not for everyone, right? Like this is just one form of investment that people can utilize. And so, you know, I think moving forward, the businesses that we bring on, some might be taking venture capital Mm -hmm. investment, but some might be doing some other forms, whether it's through grants or, you know, issuing stocks, you name it. Yeah. And understanding that you have options, right? So when do you Mm -hmm. want to enter the venture capitalism? I did it again. I'm sorry. Venture capital space. (laughs) That won't be the first. Time, by the way, the venture capital space, and is it right for you? And, you know, I love mm. the example of you know if if you were to start a new podcast software, but you're a taxi driver, is that really the best route for you? I don't really, probably not. And is he going to want to listen to that? Probably not. So yeah, just the takeaways of when to enter the space, when not to enter the space, and thinking mm. about the options that you have before going into venture capital. I love that. I love yeah. that. Maybe we need a. So I'm writing down our all our ideas. So we are starting a podcast software. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and a, quite a few other ideas. Uh, so anybody out there, if you want to help Ali and I start our next business, holler at go. us. <laughs> yeah. And well, and with that said, again, I know we say it every week, but we really want to make this more of a discussion. We want to hear from you. Check. Mm us out online at whenpigsfly.fm. Ping us on Twitter. Ping us on Instagram. We want to hear from you. Facebook. Yeah, Facebook. All the above. Let's start (laughs) start the conversation. Exactly. So I think with that, it's time to... I think so. It's time to prost. Prost. Cheers. Cheers. And here's some necessary legal stuff. Allie Martin and Patrick Bailey developed the When Pigs Fly podcast in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, we do not own equity or any financial interest in the companies which appear on this show unless otherwise indicated. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of the EW Scripts company and its affiliates or Generator Management LLC and its affiliates or any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. We have not considered your specific financial situation nor provided any investment or legal advice on the show. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. We also want to give a shout out to Claire and Christian of Moonbow. They're the two artists of our intro song, which is so catchy and gets stuck in our heads all the time. 
So bop over to Spotify or wherever you find your music and give them a listen. And Like the Night by Moonbow is courtesy of Silver Lake Sync.